Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome back. And thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Talking Each Other Home. This is a place where we can come and talk openly and honestly about all things spirit stuff. My favorite stuff. <laughs> my intention and mission with this podcast is to interview people and get curious about their spiritual journeys, their stories, their lessons, their wisdom, their unique perspectives, so that it may empower and enlighten your journey and my journey as we walk and talk each other home. And so I am your host, Danny. Welcome back. And joining me today, I have Hamid Jabbar. And this is a really big moment for me because I have lots of love and respect for this human. And I was so excited when he agreed to come and talk on the podcast and be a mentor in spirit school. And so in spirit school, he's going to be talking about sound and spirituality. And he's also going to be talking about plant medicine, something he's been studying for many, many years now. And so in this podcast, we talk about both of those things, actually. Uh, we talk a lot about music and sound and his journey through that and um, being really good at guitar when he was in high school, going to music school at NYU, becoming a lawyer, still kind of in the music industry, and then going into more of the sound meditation and the healing arts and plant medicine and discovering stuff that way. So we talk about his journey through life and what's got him to where he is now. And... Um, we talk about the journey of finding your voice, which is a big journey I'm on right now. And it's something that I've been told my whole life that I can't sing. And Hamid was somebody that opened me up to the idea that everybody can sing. There's just a lot of people who have been told that they can't. And so now I'm on the journey of finding my voice. And we talk about how it's not just about singing, finding your voice. And when you do, when you are able to sing from this place of like no no walls up and you can sing with emotion. And he made this beautiful quote about how singing is more like crying than it is actually sing talking. I just thought that was so beautiful because you're tapping into this emotional state and how that opens up other things and how you're able to speak your truth no matter what in front of whoever. And I think that's such a really powerful correlation to make in that um, singing your truth and speaking your truth and sort of unlocking this part of you is actually a really powerful thing that we have as humans. And it makes me sad to think about many people don't go on the journey of finding their voice, their true voice, their whole life. And we, maybe it's just not meant for them in this lifetime, but I hope this episode encourages you to explore and find your voice. And, um, we talk about entrainment, which is something that is, I learned in his music course, the online one. And it's, um, how we're always being trained to something, you know, we're part of our environment. And so things are affecting us all the time, whether we live in a busy sort of urban environment or in a really calm, peaceful environment, everything's affecting us. And we have some control over that. And um, so we talk about entrainment, which I'm finding very fascinating right now. Um, story of finding your voice, mantras. Oh, oh, you guys, I'm so all up in the mantra stuff right now. Like I have little Ganesha sitting on my desk. Here he is. I also have a couple Hanumans over there. So for me, the mantras have been everything. I mean, just I can cry thinking about it and building the relationship with these different chants and mantras. So we talk about that and how mantras are like technology for quieting our mind and and almost igniting this new octave of us, not just sound octave, but this energy. Like if we chant to Ganesha, we're actually igniting that part in us. That's this graceful power. Um, yeah. So before I go off on a tangent, <laughs> we also talk about plant medicine 
and he meets on lots of training and has lots of experience in plant medicine um, and where he thinks that the industry might be going, what he's learned. And I think most importantly, what it's given him. And I don't want to ruin it. I'll save it for the episode, but it's quite beautiful. And how you take plant medicine and maybe the intention and what grows as you start to build a relationship with it and not just take it for um, different healing or expectations. Yeah. So beautiful. I could just melt thinking about it. It's just such a beautiful connection. And we talk about shamanism. Shamanism has come up a lot for me lately. Uh, and how it's not just, I used to think it was just for the people in South America who are serving the medicine and it's them too, but it's also found globally. Shamanism is something that's in, you know, it's in Ireland, it's in Japan, it's over in the West and Thailand. It's, it's shamanism is everywhere. And we kind of come you know, human. It's like a human, it's a human in an earth medicine. And so we even talk about how yoga is a little bit of a shamanic act. So anyway, we go down a couple rabbit holes and it's so good, you guys. And it is a long episode. So I encourage you to, you know, enjoy every single minute of it, savor it. It's, it's beautiful. And even just, I think, tapping into the vibration that Hamid brings will be really beneficial um, because all we are is vibration anyway. So I encourage you to just drop in a level deeper and listen to what he's saying. Yes, but listen to also the place that it's coming from because it's, it's beautiful. Okay. Without further ado, I'm just going to say, um, if you're interested in sound training, this would be a beautiful teacher for you. Um, if you're interested in spirit school, come join Hamid. We'll be talking about two different topics, which you're going to hear a lot about in this, um, in this podcast here. And that's it for now. Enjoy the episode and I will see you on the next one. Mm. Namaste. Hamid, welcome to the show, Talking Each Other Home. I'm so, so excited to have you with me today. Yeah, thanks, Danny. I just became a listener of the show in the last <laughs> couple of months. I didn't know you had a podcast, so I'm so excited. Thanks. It's kind of been evolving over the years and I've just really grown to love it. And I love talking. I love connecting with people and I kind of love picking their brain. And I'm just so curious, especially when somebody piques my interest and intellect about spirituality and kind of any, any way that that could go is like, you know, for you, it's like sound plant medicine, the way the body works and different things like that. So, um, I've been interviewing people that are medicine for me. And it's actually worked out really well and created some really great conversations. So this is a big moment for me to have you here because I think of you as like this teacher who um, resonates with me and my path so much, but I'm just like a baby on the journey. So this is a <laughs> pretty cool moment for me, actually. We're all babies, actually. It's it's constantly being reborn and realizing how infantile we really are. But actually, that's where the magic is, I think. Like you look at babies, there's, there's so many possibilities, mm. whereas, you know, like opening possibility is where you really start to connect with the divine, I think. And the narrower we think we are, the more we define ourselves, it starts to become less of who we really are. So it's good to be a baby on the journey always for all the babies. <laughs> okay, cool. 
Um, and what you said about titles, that's actually funny you said that because I asked you, what do I call you for spirit school? Because you're coming on to talk about a couple of things with us. And I was like, but then after I asked it and I was waiting for the answer, I'm like, what do you call anybody? And <laughs> the more people become more spiritual, like guides and teachers, and they just kind of are the way that they are, it's kind of hard to define define them. So I stopped asking people because it didn't feel right anymore. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I have, I have letters I could add after my name, you know, I have a bachelor's of music. I have a JD. I have all kinds of certifications, but I think it's like the more letters I would add after my name, the less I actually am defining who I am. And so it's really challenging these days because I think the way that we're conditioned is we want to say, oh, he is a, a so-and-so, he is a this and that, a, a shaman or a, a sound teacher. And one of my favorite quotes is Kierkegaard, who says something to the effect of, if you name me, you negate me. When you name me, you destroy all the possibilities of what I might be. You know, so sometimes leaving things unnamed keeps open you know, that universe. So my business cards, which I have, and I haven't given one out in years, just has my name and my phone number. <laughs> but like, what is it? What do you do? I'm like, no, that's just me. <laughs> you want to get in touch with me? Get in touch with me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that. If you name me, you negate me. And that reminds me of another quote that says, a God defined is a God confined. And, and even the Tao that can be named is not the Tao. It kind of all goes into that um, same thing. And I love exploring that topic too. It's like, there are no words to explain it, which I think makes spirit school a little bit hard and why it's like, there's all of these things, but it's all this and beyond the beyond. This <laughs> is mm -hmm. just a path. Yeah. That's the realm of artists and poets because what, what that kind of language in poetry does is try to capture that, you know, that's beyond the words. It's in the words, but it's taking you to a place. It's taking you to a feeling or emotion or a sense that kind of borders on, you know, like synesthesia, like where you can hear the sound sometimes in a ceremony, but like see it too. You're like, oh, wow, I see the sound, but I can taste it. And it's got this like, you know, and it's really hard to like even define that, like that experience where everything is is connected and there's it's beyond our senses so yeah anyway I'm, I'm with you on that stuff the words become challenging but they're necessary you know yes um so I guess just I want to know a little bit about your journey I know that you practiced law for a little bit and then kind of got into more of what you do now and you went to music school before law school was that before that I'm just yeah. curious how you got into what you do now because you're so practiced and it's such a crisp, polished thing that um, I'm just curious how you got there. I was a very strange child, always doing weird things, also very curious about a lot of things. I just remembered this memory about three weeks ago, so I'll share it because it's fresh in my mind. But I had this memory come when I was maybe 10 and my parents didn't have a lot of money. They were working immigrants. And so they're all doing weird things. And I remember my mom took me to some university and they were doing child psychology experiments. I guess you got paid to like bring your kid there. 
I don't remember what the experiment was. I just remember being put in a room with a bunch of other kids. And at some point they're all doing something and I just leave the group and I see this big mirror wall and I just go over to the mirror and I'm like looking at myself and like doing weird things. And then I get the notion that maybe I should like really put my face up to the mirror like this with my hands covering my eyes and make it really dark. So I do that and instantly I see that there's a whole room on the other side of people watching us. And I was like, whoa, that's, <laughs> that's like peering through the looking glass. And I mean, this kind of tells you what kind of child I was because I obviously wasn't doing the thing they wanted me to do. I was looking more on these other things. But so when I when I wanted to go to college, my parents basically said, you need to figure out a way to go because we can't afford it. And I happened to be really good at guitar. So I got a music scholarship to go to NYU, which mm -hmm. was a really good music school. The entire time, if you're a music student, what's going on in the back of your head is, what the heck am I going to do when I graduate? Because you, you have limited options, you know? Mm -hmm. You could go become a waiter in New York City, which is pretty much what a lot of people would do. Or you could play music and just scrape by. I still have friends doing that that I went to music school with. They're on food stamps. They've been doing this for 20 plus years. And that's their thing. But I always had it in me like, I want to actually not struggle the way my parents struggled. So at some point towards the end, I decided to go to law school. You know, at the time, I think I could justify it based on other reasons. Like I wanted to help artists and blah, blah, blah. But the real reason was I was scared of going broke. And <clears throat> I actually was really scared of law school because they didn't have an undergraduate education worth anything. I mean, while other people were taking real classes, I was taking music classes. And a Bachelor of Music can't get you into many law schools, even today, that you need a BA or BS. And my mom always joked, well, you have a BM. What is that, a bowel movement? You know, like, <laughs> it's a legitimate degree. So I did go to law school. I ended up doing really well. And that was a very interesting experience to, to rise to the top of the class and see that there were all kinds of possibilities that I had no idea what they were before. I didn't know a lawyer in my entire life. And so all of a sudden I have, you know, law firms coming at me and one of the best firms in LA came at me and said, okay, yeah, we're going to hire you. You'll be the only hire from UCLA this year, basically. So I decided to do that because it was good money and it was in the field of music and the kinds of things I wanted to do. I did that for two years and realized I hated it and I couldn't understand why everybody wanted this job <laughs> like, because I certainly didn't want it. So I am a pretty quick uh, person. Like when I get an inkling and I know, I just act. So I moved to Arizona after two years of being a lawyer to take a year break kind of and just recalibrate. And that was just the time that we experienced the Great Recession, you know, 2007, 2008, which was a huge blessing because at that point I already moved out here and all of my friends were getting laid off. So they were like a year behind <laughs> trying to figure out what to do. And so I opened up my own practice, did a bunch of things, but the entire time I was really craving more and 
I I started to realize that I basically spent seven years of my life avoiding everything, like during school. It was very focused on a goal. Mm -hmm. And I saw that, wow, I can really achieve goals. Like when you get to the top law firm and you know, graduate, pass the bar in multiple states, it's kind of like to me going, well, these goals are great, but like now that I have them, it's so what's the big deal? You know, I now know I've proved to myself that I can set a goal and achieve it. And it felt empty on many levels. So I really dove inward and I decided to confront my fears. My biggest fear being of going broke, which was instilled in me from my parents, you know, that you got to work hard, you got to go broke and all of this. And I spent about a year, a year and a half, really just trying to go broke and experimenting with my nervous system's reaction to that, like not working, seeing, you know, can I get close to going broke? And how does that feel? And it was scary. And it was like, but it forced me to just be with it and understand so much more about myself. And I'll shorten the story a bit, but I couldn't go broke no matter what I tried to do. It just wouldn't work. You know, I ended up creating a nonprofit called Karma Council. I thought it was like donation-based legal services for bankrupt clients doing bankruptcy in the great recession. I'm certainly going to go broke. No, it like took off. And I'm like, wait, that's not good. Like, let's, uh, let's try something else. And, and finally, towards the end of that, I had this real sense that the universe was there and I didn't have anything to worry about. And that was right around 2010-ish. And I decided, well, look, if I can't go broke and the universe has my back, why the heck don't I just do whatever I want? <laughs> and that, that epiphany just opened my world because then I really didn't think about survival anymore. I started to think about what would fill my heart more. And so I set goals, but they were more heart-centered things that I was really interested in, like exploring yoga deeply, which I was interested in, getting into meditation and, and traveling, going to study Thai body work and um, sound, you know, like I had been so disconnected from music after music school, which is a form of trauma where they take a very creative teenager that it doesn't know the the logistics of music but understands it on a very profound level like an emotional level or spiritual mm -hmm. level <clears throat> then they force you to learn the techniques reading the music and all this and so like I graduated from music school and <clears throat> excuse me pretty much gave up playing music for a long time because that creative spark the magic was gone it was very technical mm -hmm. they had taken a right-brained creative thing and made it very left-brained and so when I started to get into yoga, meditation, all these things, I was like so drawn to the sound aspects of yoga and meditation. And me being a musician, I thought, well, you know, why not, why not start working with music again? And when I did, I started to bring things into yoga classes and explore this whole world of sound healing or sound meditation that is growing. Of course, back then we didn't know what to call it. I think the term that I heard the most was sound healing, but even that was a little weird sounding. And um, yeah, so to make this long story longer, 
<laughs> I've been doing that for for the last I don't know 13 years and somewhere along the lines got pulled into this whole area of shamanic work which if you want my personal opinion I think yoga is a shamanic practice that has become mainstream so anybody that really gets into the nuances of yoga realizes well this is this is magic I mean the yoga sutra everyone talks about the first part but they don't talk about the parts towards the end where people are walking on water and <laughs> walking through walls they don't like to talk about the magic aspects of yoga but that's the shamanic aspects of yoga and so when I you know living in the United States very close to a lot of shamanic traditions here the I don't know if I just cut out but like the people from here you know the native peoples of the southwest have long lineages of shamanic practices and I started to travel more down towards South America get into the the Amazonian traditions that were resident and the traditions of the Andes and I was never into psychedelics I was scared of them to tell you the truth I had never done anything like mushrooms or you know, I think the the more the most psychedelic I got was like smoking cannabis when I was you know, in my early 20s. Um, but there was something about the pool of these plant medicine traditions that went beyond the substance, went beyond the plant. And it was really the whole use of sound and meditation. And it wasn't about, to me, the plant itself, but where it took us, where the possibilities. And it's sort of like meditation and yoga. So started to really dive deep into that and make all the connections. You know, it's we're all searching for the same things and everybody's got ways of getting there and and so what am I do today I don't know I I'm all over the place lately because plant medicine sound are are, are places where I spend a lot of time but then also really diving into some new stuff which is kind of shaking the foundations I think there's a lot of assumptions that are wrong. So I'm really into busting paradigms. And so that's taken me down some paths with working with minerals and just health and deconstructing some of the dogmas that are out there around everything, you know, mainstream health, but also even the alternative health and even the plant medicine world is filled with dogmas. And so here I am getting to chat with you and meet, people like you who somehow come into contact with me over the years. <laughs> Does that help a little bit about my story? Oh uh, yeah, that's amazing. And it feels, you know, I, there's so many parallels with mine, like you achieving goals, being in music school and then law school and feeling empty at the top. And for me, achieving what I did with my athletic career, doing that and then still feeling empty and going to search for something else and like kind of leaving it all. And, um, and then finding yoga. And I love that you said yoga is uh, just sort of a magical shaman has this energy about it. And that's how I feel in my classes. I haven't told anybody that yet, really, but I bring the Palo Santo, I bring flutes and bowls, and I'm starting to create this whole ceremony space for people. And the music for me is absolutely key. It holds the whole thing and like drives it. It's not just about the music, but it's, um, it's a huge part of it. And so I, 
I've been playing with this term like yoga shaman, but I've kind of kept that just like under my breath a little bit because that's what it feels like when I leave. And when people leave my class, they're just like, I don't know what that was, but I liked it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and just so, yeah, so I've really been flirting with that and it's been super good. So I, I like that you said that because nobody has said that yet. Um, so yeah, it's cool. Yeah, well, that's... I think the shamanic, the word shaman is often associated with North American or South American, Native American practices. But when it was originally coined, it was referring to Mongolian practices. So from the East. And, you know, even if you dive deep into things like Theravada Buddhism, like in Thailand, Thailand is where I spent a lot of time in the Buddhist tradition. Now their brand of Buddhism is very unique it's very different than like zen buddhism or tibetan buddhism and then there's a whole subset of that that is completely shamanic you know i have all these tattoos on my back you know and they do spells and they do all kinds of interesting things it's almost uh like the the closest term we would have which just doesn't really give it justice is like witchcraft but then to see that like put into a big major religion like buddhism i think for me it opened up that aspect and then knowing the history of yoga yoga was pretty rebellious i mean although it shares texts that come out of the major that existed a lot of the practices of yoga you know they're, they're very strange and esoteric so it's a it's a shamanic subset in a way of a bigger a bigger belief system. Yeah, something I'm starting to get tuned into now. And when I first heard about shamanism, I thought it was just for people in South America, the Kuanderas that are leading the plant medicine ceremonies. That's how I was relating to a shaman. But now I'm starting to understand it as a global sort of thing that has popped up everywhere for like very uh, like ancient times everywhere and even in like i was talking to a girl yesterday about witchcraft and it sounds very much like shamanism like the way she was saying we connect to the earth and the directions and this and that and it just all seems like earth medicine and it's been yeah. everywhere so it's that's my new thing lately this last couple months i've been like oh and we're all i mean maybe this is wrong but aren't we all kind of shamanic we have that ability within everybody it's just a matter of connecting I think we we all come from a history of shamanic societies. And when you put us in the mold of modern societies where there's a big piece missing, you kind of create a traumatic experience for life because humans of all walks, as you mentioned, doesn't matter where they're from, for before civilization, you know, and there's examples of this now where people still live who still live these more connected lives that the these practices are just part of humanity so it's like i think about the birds you know nobody has to teach them anything right they're just they do their thing they do their dance they do their song well we're kind of like that except somebody told us don't do your dance don't do your song or if you're going to do it, just do it in this way that is a, that is the right way instead of allowing people to express the full breadth of humanity. And there's so much in us that is left unexpressed. I think that that explains why 
people are really seeking these traditions out. You know, people that grew up without any kind of shamanic history in their life, you know, maybe they grew up in a very conservative Christian church, still, you know, craving you know, shamanic aspects that are missing in the spiritual experience. So I think it's a really good observation. It's part of who we are and reconnecting with that really helps us to understand our humanity better, mm. understand our nature better. Mm. Okay. Love that. It's been very exciting for me lately and to draw the parallels between different people I talk to. I'm like, everybody's talking about the same thing, but there's sort of a different label that they put on it. Um, so it's, it's okay. So awesome. Thank you. And then, yeah, yoga shaman I've been playing with. I've heard people say sound shaman before. Um, and yeah, my dogs are going to bark. Can you hear my dogs barking right now? Barely. Okay. Wow. That's good. <laughs> you had to tell me they were barking. Okay. Um. So speaking of sound and something that you told me really hit home for me about singing. So I've been told my whole life that I can't sing. My sister went to singing lessons when she was little and I was kind of in gymnastics and doing stuff like that. Um, but something you told me was that like, we all have the ability to sing and we just have been told that we can. And your journey of like discovering your voice and using it was really empowering for me. And even going through your sound course, how you're saying you started with mantras, that's where I'm at right now. Like I can listen to myself do a mantra, but like the melodies I can't, and I can sing in the car. So I'm sort of on this path and listening to your journey and now knowing how amazing your live music is when you sing and the whole thing happens. Um, gives me hope. <laughs> um, so if you don't mind sharing a little bit about that story and how you found your voice, that would be amazing. Yeah, sorry. There's a little bit of a shaky video, but I hope it's coming through. Um, I think that part of the problem with our accessing that part of ourselves that is innately musical comes from also that we don't have access to our emotions in, in a full way and we're scared of our emotions we're kind of scared of them from an early age because they can be inconvenient at times you know usually they cause inconvenience for our parents because if we're having emotions in the wrong time wrong place we're told maybe to go take a time out or we're not usually encouraged to just express and let it out you know when we're young well to me music is and singing in particular is much more like crying than it is talking mm. and when you sing with the full-hearted breath it almost feels like you're crying but you're really just tapping into the emotions directly so the reason that I know that I couldn't sing early is that I was very self-conscious about my emotions. And I, I see that with clarity now. At the time, I just thought that I couldn't sing. You know, as a guitar player, I could play guitar. You know, tell me to sing something and it was tight. It wouldn't come out. I could never find the pitch. And, and then compound that with the expectations around us. So because so few people are singing, we have an expectation that when we sing, we need to match the, the quality of what we hear. 
So we set these really high expectations that also prevent us from just exploring and trying. So we waste 20 plus years, at least in my case, of just not singing because we think that we can't sing. And it's not the case. I mean, everybody, not everyone's going to all of a sudden just open up and start singing, but we have to start singing in order to really open that that well. And there's a lot in us that starts to come out when we start to sing. So for me, I did explore the voice early just with mantra, um, very simple mantras from the yoga traditions. And that was a safe place because a lot of the mantra are very monotone. Like if they chant like, Om Namah Shivaya Gurave, you know, it's like, you're just kind of one note, then the next, you know, it's like three notes maximum. No one's really going for it. <laughs> like, and letting it out but that was a way for me to hear my, my voice and also a way for me to express my voice in front of others in a safe way and that was scary you know I remember the very first time that I chanted a mantra in front of my teacher training group <clears throat> I still remember it today and it was it was frightening I, I felt all of the butterflies I felt all of the fear all of the possibilities of rejection and humiliation and judgment, you know, all of these things that actually come from childhood and all the experiences after that, I just led to reinforcing that. And then I let it out and my teacher just was like, thank you. It was beautiful, you know, and having the attunement to realize like, okay, I can do this. And then and then time went on, you know, there was a period that I was really inspired to try singing sort of when I had started teaching yoga, but before I found plant medicines. And I remember sitting at home with my guitar and, and really trying and just, I, there's this song, I, you know, I just want to learn it. And my voice was really uneasy. And I, I realized in retrospect, what was happening was that I was trying too hard. And when you try too hard with music or art, you're put into a really analytical frame of mind. But singing has to come from a place that is, is less thought out. It has to really be like an emotion. You know, you're not thinking, I'm gonna cry, I'm gonna yell, I'm gonna, it just happens. And usually then that sensor part of you, the it's like wait I maybe shouldn't be doing that or but then it just it's pouring out so it's pouring out so when I did find uh, my way into working with plant medicines the two that I primarily worked with and still work with are ayahuasca and wachuma or wachuma and peyote but wachuma so cactus medicine and medicine from the jungle I ended up down in the Amazon and part of the initiation that I was going through, I didn't know it was going to be like this until I had already paid and signed up and was booked. And then they sent just in advance some Icaros, 
with some like recordings like here you may want to listen to these and hear the words and hear what the words mean and maybe you want to think about practicing these before you arrive in the jungle <laughs> i was scared out of my mind i was like wait you mean i'm gonna have to sing i thought it was going to be a very small part of it i thought it was going to be all about oh like let's this is how the plant grows let's you know just get into the technical aspects and then i got there and the curandero basically said 95 percent of what you do as a curandero is your voice <laughs> that's what he communicated through the translator and i thought oh great <laughs> what have i gotten myself into and so in the very first ceremony that we had in his practice, he they ask at the end, does anybody want to sing? Well, it, I they put us on the spot that time because they went around and said, Danny, would you like to sing? Or Hamid, would you like to sing? And I didn't know any of those Icaros that they had sent. I should have probably studied them more. <laughs> but the medicine was strong, really strong. And a lot of my, um, my protector parts, my, my parts of myself that would censor were just offline. And so I started to sing a song called, please prepare me. Please prepare me to be a sanctuary. And I sang that and I heard my voice very differently. I was almost like I was hearing my voice as somebody outside of my body. Have you, you know, now I hear my voice recorded all the time, but I remember the first times I heard my voice recorded, I was like, oh, that doesn't sound like me. Because you're not used to hearing your voice from the outside, you're used to hearing it from the inside. I heard my voice from the outside and then there was a part of me that was listening to me sing and I didn't even realize that I was singing. It was just coming out automatically and it sounded great. So then I was like, see, it's in there. It's, it's in there. The ability is in there. The thing that prevents it is all of these protector parts, all the parts that are guarding the wounded child, the the part of me that was scared to expose myself, mm -hmm. the part of me that feared judgment, the part of me that that was programmed to think like, oh no, only singers that study singing or that practice a lot know how to sing, you know? And from there, I just, it never came back. The sensors were offline forever for some reason. And so I just started singing <laughs> and I started learning the Icaros and just, there was magic in that moment. It wasn't that that moment in and of itself created that I had been working at it. Like I said, I had been leading up to it, but that one ceremony was the final pulling the bandaid off and exposing all of the possible pain and realizing, well, actually it's already, it's it's almost healed. Let's just expose it to light and let it heal. And so from there, yeah, I've been singing. And I think singing to me has been one of the most transformative practices that I've ever had because 
the the voice is so tied into our soul our heart and i tell people this all the time in my sound trainings because i you know i do in person sound trainings and i often do put people on the spot not out of trying to traumatize them but to empower them to just take a chance in a very safe environment where no one's going to judge you I tell them, you know, this is hard, you know, just using your voice, singing in front of 10 strangers, really hard. But if you can do this, if you can sing in front of 10 people, you'll be able to speak your truth in front of anybody. Mm-hmm. And it translates into who you are in the world. You are no longer so scared of your emotions popping out in the wrong place. You're more free to say no in circumstances where you might otherwise feel like oh, I can't say no or maybe you're more free to say yes too to things that you're scared of it it changes your sense of self and you become closer to your core self I think so mm-hmm. and it's no surprise that every practice in the world shamanic yoga they all use the voice and it's not about being an audience to the voice. It's about you using your own voice. That's your medicine inside of you. And so I thank you for saying that you enjoy my singing. I'm not sure. I I don't know. Any, you know, to me, it doesn't matter. Like if somebody enjoys it, it's wonderful reflection. But the feeling of singing is where it's at. And so that's what I think comes across is because I don't have a a typical studio voice, but what people tend to hear in my voice, I think is the rawness of my emotion. And Mm -hmm. that's the resonance that they feel it. And so, you know, there are singers like that, you know, like think of like people like Bob Dylan, the guy doesn't have a voice that is traditionally like a good voice but there's an emotion and Johnny Cash you know like there's people that I think we judge ourselves by the quality of our voice versus the quality of what's conveyed through our voice and that's where the magic is it's amazing it gives me hope too and it's like I think you said one time it's not like how technical you are at singing, but it's like how you sing, where you're singing from. And that was a really big thing for me um, because I know when I'm in my car alone or when I'm chanting, I'm singing from a certain place and it can bring me to tears. And so I resonated with that versus thinking about what's on the radio now or the perfect people who are perfectly chanting. It gave me a whole new way to look at my voice and using it. And you even mentioned something too about resonance. And having your voice resonate in a deeper part of yourself, like down in your belly, sort of. And sometimes when I hear myself talk, I hear the resonance in my body and it, I can feel sort of the vibration even when I'm just talking. So lately I've been, when I sing, tuning into the to the vibration of it or what it's doing to my vocal cords versus just what I'm hearing audibly. And it's been a really interesting thing. And even when I cue in my yoga classes, we always ohm at the end of class. So I tell people to feel for the vibration and I can tell when they do it because nobody, they don't care about what they're singing, but the ohm sounds so good when they're not caring about what they hear, but they're like feeling it in their chest or something. Um, So the resonance is interesting. 
And can you talk about that? Cause I asked somebody how to sing and they said, tighten up your belly, but you say have a loose belly. Yeah. Well, most people's experience with their core is naturally tight. I don't know if it comes from when we're younger, we're trying to look good in bathing suits. People are always sucking in their belly. Okay. Maybe it's out of self-conscious. Like I don't want to have my belly outward. What that does, if you're trying to sing or even just trying to talk, you know, before I was singing, I was teaching yoga teachers and I would tell them, you know, you have a room of 50 people, sometimes a big studio. You need to make sure that when you talk, the person on the other side of the room can hear you, but you don't want to be yelling. You want to just speak and you want it to resonate. And so already I was teaching them to really just soften the belly. And at the beginning, when you're first learning that, it feels very foreign. And I, I even push people further and say, when you're talking, try to push your belly outward, even as you're exhaling. It's really a strange, different feeling. But then the entire body starts to become a resonant chamber for the sound. So you project without effort. You could almost whisper that way and your whisper is loud. Well, I, I have really good friends who are still yoga teachers and they'll lose their voice after teaching a bunch of classes. And the reason they lose their voice is because they're trying to make it loud all from the throat up into the head. And everything down here is just tight. It's like Udhyanabandha was in yoga people know, like draw the belly in and up. But the diaphragm, which is what expands our lungs, has to move downward, and it won't move downward with this Udhyanabandha, this drawing the belly in. So the only way to get that diaphragm to expand is to soften the belly or even push it outward. Then your whole body starts to resonate. And also, we're very tight in the mouth and the jaw, a lot of people. And so it's when you want to really project and get your sound moving you have to really experience like creating space mm -hmm. like inside of yourself it's very interesting too the female body the male body to an extent but the female body is really fascinating when it comes to the voice because in utero there's always these things that split you know it's like we start to divide and we we kind of like have mirror image parts that open and one becomes this and one becomes that. Well, there's the cervix and the, the vocal cord area, the trachea, they start as the same and then they split and they go opposite directions. So really the womb for women is an extension. It's connected with the voice. So for women too, there's other practices that they may wish to explore if it's tight up here maybe it's too tight down here or maybe you know the energy isn't flowing so mm -hmm. it's all connected within our body and I think that you know not to get too far afield there but the same thing happens humans naturally vocalize during lovemaking this this is they haven't have a technical term called female copulatory vocalization <laughs> somebody has studied this well what does that require it requires like the full 
surrender and opening and allowing, that isn't going to happen with tightness on either end. Mm. Singing is a full body experience, and it's very much tied into that experience, the ecstatic states too. So I, I think it's just a reflection on our society <laughs> that most people feel tight in their voice, but they're also constricted in other areas. So yoga is a beautiful practice. The yoga traditions are all about working with the energy centers, especially the lower energy centers at first and really understanding how, you know, you have to have a foundation, but there's also times where these things happen. And um, I, got, I got totally far afield from where you were taking me. But, but yeah, the, the resonance inside of the body is so much greater when we can really soften the core and create space there. And so this is one of the first things people learn. I think you'll learn the hard way if you don't learn the easy way, which the easy way is just, I just told you, just push the belly out. The hard way is people will strain their voice and actually lose their voice over time. If you're singing properly, you should never lose your voice because you're not putting strain on it. It's all just like a big bellows, a big supported instrument. Cool. <laughs> Super cool. Yeah, that was a perfect um, tangent, a really cool way to draw all of it together, actually. Yeah. Um. My goal this year is to find my voice. I feel like it's there and it's waiting for me to, you know, I took a couple steps and just hearing myself speak in ceremony and talk and chant in ceremony. And it was awesome. It was the first time it was nervousing. But then after that, I couldn't stop. I would be in the car and I'm like turning down the radio. I'm like, listen to me real quick. <laughs> and it just like, yeah. it kept getting brave and kept doing it. So I feel like it's, it's ready. It's like right there. And now, even when I'm alone in my car, I turn the music off and listen to myself. And so now I can finally hear myself without being like, Ugh. but I also feel like there's um, me speaking my truth and me coming to another level of myself as a speaker, as a teacher, as a anything that I do, it feels like this next level of me is like ready to burst and the voice throat chakra stuff is all part of it. Yeah. yeah. That's where I'm at. I'll just you know, that's the path into just getting rid of the layers that are blocking it. And it's, you know, it, it opens slowly. It opens slowly over time and it will happen at some point. Like I said, I have one ceremony where it was just ready to open, but there was a lot of lead up to that. Okay, good. And just while we're on the voice and like sound and stuff, Something you said in your sound course was really cool to me that mantra is a technology. I just really enjoyed hearing about that, how it's like a technology to quiet our minds. Um, I don't know. Can you talk a little bit about mantra? Because that's so where I'm at right now. Yeah, for sure. I think the word mantra is, it's kind of like the word karma. It's been put into our vocabulary. And so it's kind of lost its meaning because Everyone's like, what's your mantra? Do you have a mantra? Like, yeah, but but mantra is a Sanskrit word and really it's talking about the mind and a, and a tool for accessing parts of our consciousness. Now the mind in yoga philosophy is not the brain. 
this is like an, a different conception of what mind is, but mantra, and there's many types of mantra, but just to keep it simple, like a lot of the mantras have a purpose. Like they're prescriptive in a way, meaning you would chant a certain mantra or repeat it or or meditate with it because it's going to unlock some part of your mind. It's going to unlock a piece of consciousness that's there. So a good example would be the Ganesha mantra. For anybody who's in the yoga world, there's many Ganesha mantras, and I'm sure people in the yoga world know who Ganesha is. He's a very, very popular Hindu there he is you know and he's a very interesting creature because he's got an elephant head but he's got the body of a man and there's a whole story as to how he ended up in this this way but there's a very simple Ganesha mantra that just goes Om Gam Ganapataye Namaha and it's really just saying you know it's his name Ganapataye is another way of saying Ganesha. And Namaha is like Namaste. It's like, you know, we we salute you. Mm-hmm. So it seems kind of cheesy if you translate it that way. But the, the way that these mantras work is that when you chant the Ganesha mantra, you start to embody all of those qualities of Ganesha. And you're, you might visualize them you know, all of his great qualities and a lot of what he's associated with is clearing obstacles from the path. Or another way to look at it is writer's block. If you cannot access that creative force within you, uh, he's very much associated with the earth and the root, you know? So that makes sense when you're starting something new, you always got to have a strong foundation. And so when you're beginning something it's really helpful a lot of times to to have that strong foundation and if you're having difficulty along that journey you might go back and start chanting Ganesha mantra and in the cosmology of the practice it starts to open up that part of you that is reflection of Ganesha because we all have this kind of inner elephant right this strong you know, but not aggressive, you know, the path is there. Maybe it's got a few obstacles, but if you're a big elephant, you just walk slowly and calmly and people get out of the way or whatever's there just kind of moves aside because it's it's that force of the Ganesha, the elephant coming through. And so Ganesha mantra is a good example. You know, you chant it at the beginning of something like that and it does unlock an aspect of our own consciousness. And our own um, feelings so that we really get out of our own way <laughs> it's much like what we're talking about with singing just now where the only parts that are really blocking us that are really obstacles that we've put up defense mechanisms and they serve a purpose of course they're there to to help us but those obstacles or you know the self-judgment etc Ganesha mantra is a tool for kind of loosening their grip so that the more subtle parts of ourselves can be heard mm-hmm. and then there's all kinds of mantra beyond that you know this is where it starts to really looks like a shamanic practice because 
there's mantras for prosperity and abundance. There's mantra for um, like real transformation and change. There's there's all kinds of mantra that people might chant. There's also a practice where you don't have to chant it. Like you have a mala, for instance, and instead of outwardly chanting it, the mantra, you just meditate and inwardly chant it, like softly into your mind, your consciousness, and feel it. And so people there have been chanting mantra for thousands of years in India. And I think it's it's a wonderful practice. And yeah, it is a technology, you know, in the sense, I think people think technology means it's got to have electronics in it. But 5,000 years ago, which is when the Veda of India were codified, now they've existed orally before that, for God knows how long, technology would have been very different, you know? So it's a shamanic technology. It's a, it's a magic technology. But it's really just unlocking parts of our consciousness. It's a, you know, if you want to look at it from another aspect, it's a form of really introspective psychology. That's a way of getting deep inner work through sound, through the resonance of a particular phrase or word. Okay. Amazing. I've, now that you said that chanting is kind of a shamanic practice, I can see that because even when you go to South America, they're doing their Icaros and doing those kind of things. So I've never really connected the two. I was just thinking of the yoga class being like that, but now I just had sort of an aha moment about even the chanting. And like, I just, I just love it so much. It's like what I listen to in my free time. It is what I have on all, or like jungle music, you know, sort of like it's either Spanish medicine music or Sanskrit. I barely ever listen to anything English, but I love it. And, um, um, oh my gosh, there was something else I wanted to say about that. Oh, I've been having really beautiful experiences lately. When I listen, I've been listening to Ganesha, Hanuman and Lakshmi. And, um, when I listen, I'm having these sort of visions and, like I'm sitting on Ganesha's shoulder in one of them and we're like walking through the jungle and he's sort of like clearing the path after me nice and slow. And it's really, so I'm starting to develop a relationship now beyond just knowing the words. It's, it's kind of going a level deeper. And even Hanuman, like I sit in his hand and meditate with him and Lakshmi's like pouring coins on my head for abundance. And so there's like really beautiful things and relationships growing with these, these mantras um and i just I love sometimes they bring me to tears like especially hanuman lately is really special to me for some reason maybe it's the love the devotion it yeah. feels really nice um so i guess i, I kind of want to talk about entrainment because that was something that really hit home for me in your course and i think it's something i would love for people to know about entrainment because i think it's happening to them and they don't even know and maybe they could control it a little bit more. And maybe if they want more peace in their life, maybe they could look at ways that they're entraining themselves to stress and start to maybe unravel some of that. So can we uh -huh. talk about entrainment? Sure. Yeah. Well, we are resonant beings and that isn't a woo-woo concept. It's, it's a fact, you know, we are very sensitive to external stimuli and I'll just put in the context of sound you know it I think people 
we get numb. We get numb a lot of the time, especially people living in urban environments. There's no way that you could live in an urban environment if you were incredibly sensitive to all of the things that were happening around you. The only way to live there is to make yourself numb to them. And although our minds get numb, our bodies still feel it. We just get disconnected from that feeling. So a good example would be just the sounds of like construction. I mean, you can just imagine this. Anybody listening could imagine like you're standing on a corner of a street. It's nice and peaceful. And all of a sudden, 10 feet away, someone starts jackhammering into the concrete. Your entire nervous system is going to respond to that vibration. It's going to increase the heart rate. You're going to have a feeling. There's probably going to be a, an emotion when I say that people get numb, what you end up doing is dissociating from the body and tuning it out. <laughs> That's what we're taught. But it's not just those kinds of sounds. It's all sounds, even pleasant sounds, like the sounds of birds. Like you sit outside and you hear the birds chirping. It feels nice. It feels good for a reason. You know, that's those are the types of sounds that have for countless thousands, millions of years, signaled that all was right, that everything was going well. And so our anatomy is built to hear that and be like, okay, things are nice. So you're mm -hmm. going to be calm. You're going to be happier. The concept of entrainment is just that, which is that we're not living in isolation from our environment. We're not. We're, we're connected to everything around us. We're also resonant with people around us. So if you're sitting next to somebody who's uh, super happy and, and giddy, you know, like you might even start to feel that like, oh, I feel like this feeling or like laughter, like one person starts laughing, it's contagious. One person starts yawning, that's contagious too. You know, by the same token, you walk into a room and there's people in there if the energy is such that they were discussing something really awful or they had anger or frustration, you sense it immediately. It's almost as though you, you don't have to hear what they said because there's parts of us that are connected through this still yet fully unknown way, but probably through heart coherence, meaning we can sense each other's heartbeats and we can sense other aspects. And so our environment changes our, our bodies, changes our moods. One of the things that is really helpful to understand is that this is one of the things that, do, that music does. You know, music is a very mysterious thing. You know, why is it that a certain series of notes makes us smile just that sonic expression and then why is it like another series of notes a different key a different scale make us sad and cry you know music has this ability to really entrain us now I think the piece that you mentioned is that people can help themselves by first just understanding that this is happening 
Um, I used to live in the city. I lived in New York City, then I lived in Los Angeles, then I lived in downtown Phoenix. And I got increasingly more sensitive as I moved to quieter cities. Now I live way out in the country, you've been to my house. There's hardly a lot of sounds out here. So because of that, I've been trained to a very calm environment. When I go to the city, I notice everything. There's a hum, there's a buzz. It doesn't feel good, you know? And I think people first should just become aware that they're being influenced by everything around them and admit it to themselves and start to pay attention. You know, this, this is what mindfulness is really trying to teach people, I think, is just, just sit there and listen and become aware of what's going on and then also become aware of what's going on within you because it's usually in resonance with the outside world. Um, but I call it, you know, just curating your diet of sound. That would be the first step people would take, which is I have some agency over the things that I'm exposed to. Now I'm using sound, but other things entrain us as well. The light, you know, artificial lighting versus natural lighting. Mm -hmm. um, we get entrained to other people's emotions to a degree. So interestingly, our biology doesn't really know that the people sitting on a television screen aren't real. This is why you can cry, you know, with movies and, you know, you feel scared or you watch something that's gruesome and you actually flinch. We're having a physical reaction and our body is telling us like, oh my God, this is affecting me. So we can kind of curate the types of things that we expose ourselves to. Like if we, if we want to feel more peaceful, maybe we should limit our exposure to things that aren't very peaceful, such as, you know, the 24-hour news cycle doesn't need to be playing on the TV. I mean, there are people I know, I go to their house and it's like the TV is playing whatever cable news just nonstop. And all of those people that I've, I've observed that are like that, there's a level of anxiety Everything is really, you know, they're ready to talk about how bad everything is too. <laughs> so, but one of the problems with entrainment is that like attracts like. So because it's a feedback mechanism. So if you're in a very peaceful state, you're going to seek out peaceful sounds, peaceful environments. But if you're in a state that is anxious and fearful, but you don't recognize that, you're going to seek out things that resonate with that too. And you can tell a lot about a person based on the music that they listen to. When I was a yoga teacher, I used to just find this fascinating. Again, I'm always the weird kid that's like not, not paying attention, but I would listen to like what music the teacher is playing that will tell you a lot about the emotional state of that teacher or where they're at. And so, you know, I've been in classes where it's like the songs are like really intense and like, uh, and like they're, they're trying to entrain me to this other vibration that is like way more intense than I'm at. And I don't feel good. Then I leave the class going, Oh, it feels good to be out of that class or something. <laughs> 
versus you know the job of a yoga teacher in my in my opinion it's just my opinion is to take people who probably are coming from the other state which is rapid high anxiety and bring them in and train them to a different state make them feel the calm and then hopefully they go out and because they're in that state they choose to uh, further that state by choosing different things to listen to so you know when I was a teenager I was really angry I, I don't know why I mean I'm sure there's like reasons, but it, it probably is a number of factors, but you know, I grew my hair long and I was in a heavy metal band, multiple heavy metal bands. And all my music was like screaming and mosh pit style music, which at the time I, that just felt good because I was already in that state. So I was choosing that music because it was a match. It mixed with my vibration. So entrainment is is two ways, you know, we're going to seek out the way we feel by seeking the stimuli. And I think when you become conscious to that, you could intentionally seek things that are different to bring you into a different state if you're willing to go there. And that's what sound healing, sound meditation, sound therapy really works on is this idea or experience of entrainment, which is just getting people to resonate with these instruments and a different frequency. And it changes our biology. It changes our hormones. It changes our heartbeat and our heart rate variability. And it can have profound impacts on our health. So I think it's, it's important for people to realize that the world isn't getting any quieter, especially in urban areas. And there's definitely a noticeable effect on people's psyches and their health, mental health, um, that's contributed to by this kind of effect. So maybe one of the reasons, again, that sound healing is blown up in the last 10 years it's like emergency room medicine <laughs> for a very noisy world. Mm. And people need to come out of that world and find a space where they can reattune themselves and train themselves to a more natural state that they're craving on some level. And so, yeah, entrainment is a, is a fascinating aspect of how we operate. But I think it just reminds me so much of many of the parts of the shamanic traditions that I was, you know, under and, and I still resonate with reminding us that we're not separate from anybody. The separation is really an illusion that when someone else near us is going through something, in a way we're going through it too. And not just other people, but the planet or the animals and you know, the elements like the wind and this storm can have a profound impact on us and the sun and so just to remind ourselves that we're part of something and so we're going to vibrate with that amazing <laughs> okay um what so i have a question about be, now like a new sound practitioner on the journey what would you like to see for the sound 
healing or meditation sort of industry? Like, what do you think there needs to be more of or have it done right? And even maybe plant medicine too. I know that we've been talking for a while, but I would like to ask about the sound thing and then also plant medicine as well. Like, what would you like to see done better with ceremony spaces? Wow. <laughs> um, well, let me just finish up on the sound piece. Okay. Because I think I can tie it into what we were talking about before, which is, I think we're seeing a progression. Now there's more and more people becoming sound practitioners and facilitating and other people are experiencing. The next step <laughs> when we get there, and I don't know when this is going to blossom, but is instead of being completely a recipient kind of thing where people come in and receive the sound that we're going to move more in towards a participatory environment where people are sharing more of the sounds themselves, like chanting along, singing along. Now there are practices like that. Kirtan is one of them. And I always in my sound classes, I do make people chant a little bit so that they can experience their own voice. And I that's the direction I think we're going to start moving more into, which is everybody is just like everybody can become a shaman now. Everyone's going to become a sound practitioner. It doesn't mean that you can't go receive, but also you're going to start making more sounds. And I think the more people are free to make sound, experience it, sing, chant, whatever it is, be more creative, the more healing it will be for everybody. Mm. And then it's a shared experience in that way. And that I think is where, you know, that's that's what I love about the plant medicine type ceremonies. And now when I say that, there's a million ways that people are working with plant medicines. You know, even in the jungle, there's 80 plus tribes that work with ayahuasca. So there's not one tradition. And those 80 tribes think the other ones are doing it wrong. You know, <laughs> everyone's got their, their belief systems. But a lot of what threads through them all is the use of sound, mm -hmm. the use of song, the use of music. And in that environment, it is often a communal thing where it can be that one person is singing, but maybe not always. Maybe people are singing along or maybe people are invited to sing a song themselves. And so I think the more people start to get exposed to sound healing as recipients, the more want to start delivering it. But then that really opens up a lot of possibilities because if everybody in the class is a sound practitioner, wow, you could have a totally different type of class perhaps in the future. We're not there yet, but that's just where I think it's going slowly. That would be, that would be great. And the freedom I think that would give people and the play and to express themselves in a different way, instead of being so shut down and sort of closed off, I feel like it would open so much. And then collectively it would start to open more. That would be, it's still one of my dreams to go to a kirtan. Have you ever led a kirtan? Would you ever? I if I had the right backing band, you know, with musicians that could 
could support it, I would do it. Okay. You know, really, it's so much fun when you've got all the instruments, you know, somebody playing drums or tabla, somebody playing guitar, somebody on the harmonium, and maybe you have a flute player. Then it really becomes a, a collective jam. And then you've got everybody singing at the same time. And it's that same thing. It's an entrainment. It's like as everybody sings, everybody gets in that same vibration. They call it the bhav. You feel the bhav, the bhava. The, you start to, you get high just by singing and being surrounded by it. So I haven't led one. I have led chanting and singing, but a full kirtan is quite a thing if you ever go I mean the real masters it's you'll have a lot of appreciation for what they're able to to do which is just get people into this state with the voice mm. it's a very powerful thing it's my goal well you know I'm up here near New York so it's my goal to go to a Krishna Das one this year and just yeah. experience like a real real kirtan um but I also think you're amazing on the harmonium and I'm sure you could do a great job too. <laughs> yeah. I would love to lead a kirtan one day. I just think that would speak to the level of my bravery and how much I've come out of my shell and learned with music. Sometimes I picture myself leading a kirtan. I mean, I know that's probably years down the road, but I love it. I love the mantra so much that there's something there for me, I think. Yeah. Well, you, you just need to go to a kirtan and it you know you'll meet other kirtan fans and start a band <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah probably some more plant medicine journeys and i'll start to unlock that <laughs> yeah but you had asked you know where do i can you ask me again about the plant medicine where is it going or what do i see i don't remember yeah i guess name. where do you how do you think it could be done better or like um where do you think there are holes and i know even just like nutritionally i think we've talked about it before that there's like some different minerals and some things that are really being missed nutritionally but even in the ceremony space like what do you think people are missing well i'll tell you this i don't know because i haven't been in every ceremony space on this planet and so i can't paint with a broad brush as to what's happening in them I, I see a limited environment. And so I hear from other people and I have been in, you know, traditional ceremonies and non-traditional ceremonies, but it isn't a common thing for me. But I guess, you know, one observation I'll make is that just like what happened with yoga, that's kind of the blueprint for what's happening with plant medicines. You know, at the beginning, when yoga came to the United States, it was a very small niche group of people who brought practices from India that were very kind of by the book in a way, like we'll practice Ashtanga yoga the way that Patabi Joyce taught it. Or, and then you had Indian teachers coming like uh, Bikram who created his own whole thing. And then what happens is like, then you start to see the second generation, which are people that were learning yoga from people that were teaching in the United States. And, and with each generation of teachers, there, there comes innovation. So you start to see things like vinyasa flow. 
right? Or, I mean, fill in the blank. Now that there's so many different styles of yoga that look very different than the way that yoga looked even 50 years ago. And then the evolution becomes, there's a yoga studio on every corner and there are yoga franchises and yoga is a, I don't know, multi-billion dollar industry and business. That is exactly the way that plant medicines have gone. You know, 20 years ago, anybody working with ayahuasca was probably really strange in the United States. There were people going down to the Amazon working with ayahuasca perhaps, but wasn't very commonly worked with here. It was very fringe. Then it started to get into the mindset like 10 years ago, more ceremonies in the United States um, and more of an evolution away from some of the ways that were being practiced. And then now to the point where there's a type of ayahuasca ceremony for everybody. There's ones that are still based. They're kind of using the indigenous model. Then there's some that are completely foreign. You would never know. It's completely different music. It's incorporating Western psychology, you know, upon it. And, and then it's just branching out. And then with the birth of psychedelic assisted therapy coming they can't open up the ketamine clinics fast enough it seems and then what's going to come next is psilocybin and then maybe ayahuasca maybe wachuma retreat centers and maybe one on every corner just like what happened with yoga so about that do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing well, I don't know if I can put a judgment on it as being good or bad, but but what I'll say about it is that it might lose some of the potency if it becomes the kind of thing where to be a sitter or whatever they're going to call the people that hold space, you just have to go to a weekend course and learn, you know, then it kind of or maybe it turns into like what happened with yoga, <clears throat> which is that you go to a 200 hour training, right? Which is a lot of hours, but but definitely not enough hours to like be a yoga master. You know, it's like, it's enough to probably not, it's enough to know to teach in a studio, like a one hour, two hour class, right? So I think you get more practitioners, people exposed, but less depth. Mm. and maybe that's okay because a lot of people are not ready for the depth I think you know one of the things that I've noticed in the plant medicine world is that people want they want it they want these big experiences they want to have these deep transformations or at least they say they want it but many aren't ready for it. I mean, there can be really interesting things that could happen if people come to ceremony and they get all kinds of ideas, but it can throw them for a loop too, because 
then you have to go back to the life that you created for yourself and really confront whether you know that is the life you want so i think some of what i see is that i view plant medicines as like the doctorate degree the master's degree and that there's some logic to first going to elementary then going to middle school high school college but people coming to a plant medicine ceremony without having any of the background in any kind of self-work, spirituality, deep work too, you know, like graduated from the basics and on. They're not necessarily going to reap all of the benefits that are possible. Again, is that good or bad? I don't know. I, I can't put a judgment on it. One thing I'm more concerned about is just the availability of certain plants like ayahuasca, because it is a slow growing plant and it's pretty extractive. You know, if the entire world wants to have ayahuasca, but it's only being grown in the Amazon, then we're extracting that resource for our own somewhat selfish desire, which is to heal ourselves from the world that we created for ourselves. <laughs> so it's like, I see an aspect to that, that this doesn't seem logical like there could be better ways like maybe we should really just deeply question some of the things about our lives that we take for granted the way that we parent the way that kids are raised the way that we school kids and all of these things that have led us into the adulthood where people are seeking to transform why don't we start earlier so that we don't create a whole generation of adults just seeking to transform themselves. Why don't we figure out where it went wrong and do the in that versus jumping to extract this beautiful, amazing plant, which, you know, I don't think there's enough ayahuasca for everybody in the world if everybody wants to do that. Mm. So that's a concern I have is just, are we going to totally extract this resource for a selfish reason? Or are we going to help to replenish it? Maybe we need to grow it if we're going to have it everywhere, you know, and that's hard because we're not all tropical environments in the United States and not just ayahuasca. There's other plants. You can see that happen a little bit with peyote, which is very precious and um, a beautiful medicine, but, challenging because of the sustainability of it so i have some concerns about sustainability which is why i am kind of a fan of the idea of psilocybin because psilocybin is incredibly sustainable mm. the mushrooms are prolific and can grow in any climate i mean people can grow them anywhere basically that to me seems like a really good avenue to explore the possibilities with that medicine if we're going to be using it for the types of purposes that people are seeking and you know you can separate purposes because it's moving more towards like clinical use clinical use, use. Um, i personally think that my experiences with ayahuasca are not clinical. You know, the benefits that I've had from ayahuasca come from how deeply it's connected me on a spiritual level. 
that isn't something that hospitals or clinics are concerned about these days necessarily if they're going to be working with ketamine or psilocybin they're not they're missing a big piece of the puzzle which is what ails us might be our disconnection from source mm -hmm. and and so you can only take people so far in those environments and maybe that's going to leave open still the the possibility you know people will still seek out other types of work with the plants in the future that are deeper experiences that that aren't clinical and i think the second things get clinical i start to get a little bit hesitant because i've seen this now with cannabis for instance it's legal everywhere right almost everywhere well you know, this is a good thought experiment because we've just seen in the last three years how powerful um, big corporations are and big corporations, especially big drug companies, are very powerful. Um, they can basically mandate policies that are adopted by multiple countries without question and and kind of call the the shots. And then interestingly, I saw like during the pandemic, there were certain alternative kinds of people promoting alternative treatments but using pharmaceutical drugs but those pharmaceutical drugs were then um defamed you know like those are bad don't use those but to me that's very strange because these were created by those big companies mm -hmm. and i and they were successful in shutting that down so i start to question well why aren't they shutting down all the research on psilocybin. Why aren't they shutting down the research on ketamine? Ketamine. Why aren't they shutting down the, the MAPS things? These pharmaceutical companies are powerful enough to shut it down. It takes a few calls to their, their people in office that um, they have connections with, but they would do it, but they're not. So it's sort of like controlled opposition in my view, which mm. is like, oh, they're allowing this to happen. They're allowing all of this stuff to move forward. And I ask, well, why would they do that? Because there's a benefit to them. Either they're planning on getting in the game. And that's a big possibility, which would be very, very interesting. You know, they come up with their own substances that people are using in these clinics patented or whatever that I think is a scary proposition or they benefit in other ways which is much more of the work that I've been doing with minerals which is that we do know that a lot of people end up in psychological emotional states that they're seeking healing from not just because they had trauma you know a lot of people have trauma but they don't end up there but because they have trauma, but they also have physical issues going on, often with metabolic issues or mineral dysregulation. And so big pharma stands to benefit if millions of people are going to take psilocybin, they're already depleted, a lot of them. That's why they don't feel right. Or they're going to go take ketamine. That's why they're depressed. Their metabolism is completely off kilter those medicines ketamine psilocybin when given to people who are very dysregulated don't fix the dysregulation 
they they can help the psyche, but they can further dysregulate the body. And so I think I think the big pharma is very clever and they know they'll have additional customers on the back end because they'll those people will end up getting other prescriptions for other things from them. So this with cannabis too, it hasn't cannabis hasn't necessarily diminished big pharma profits. In many ways, it helps them because that plant is tricky and a lot of people can become dependent, but also to the point where they're hurting themselves and they end up causing damage and then they have to seek out. So I start to get a little worried when things start to become legal because, you know, that's the way my lawyer mind works sometimes too like what's the hidden hidden agenda here i can definitely see all of that i heard something uh the other day i was watching something on cannabis on youtube and how it's saying we've gotten so far away from the actual natural plant that we've like commercialized thc and like pumped these plants full of thc which where it's like unnatural proportions and versus it being the natural dosage that actually is naturally grown. It's like we've commercialized this has 90% THC. And then it's like way off just kind of the natural order of things. And I, I've never heard it put that way before. And I was like, man, that is so true. And if you look at all like the gummies or whatever you buy in the stores, it's all like THC, this THC, that it's, it's kind of gotten away from the healing, the medicinal stuff of it. And it's like very commercialized. So that helped me look at it a little differently too. I was like, Hmm. Yeah. I mean, even people that I know that are in the cannabis industry, they're, they're like saying the same thing that it's not what it used to be. Um, mm. The plants are, are incredibly high in THC. They're not, they're not full spectrum. They, they're, they're losing something too. And I think that's the game now. It's just higher THC, higher THC. So um that makes me nervous about ayahuasca being legal, like something that's so sacred and ancient and then big companies getting a hold of it and sort of ruining it, kind of. That makes yeah, me Yeah, well, there's a history with ayahuasca that I think might save ayahuasca from this fate, which is that there was a drug company that filed a patent for ayahuasca a number of years ago and wanted to market it for depression but a group that was a group of attorneys representing the people of the amazon fought in court or the patent court and the patent wasn't renewed or it wasn't fully allowed because it was created by the people of the amazon so you know you can't patent it you don't own it that was the message so there's been that case law, but that has led to now, and I think that a little bit of research would confirm this, but there are companies that are working on modifications, if you will, that would allow them some patent protection. To me, that's incredibly extractive. And if you don't intend to pay the people of the Amazon all the money, then this is just flat out wrong because you didn't come up with any of this. And, you know, Big Pharma has for a long time been extracting from the Amazon. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a significant percentage. I think more than 50% of the, 
of drugs that are on the market were at least inspired or based upon things that the people of the Amazon had discovered. Mm-hmm. And Big Pharma has taken them and created single molecule patentable versions, usually not effective or far less effective than the remedies that the people had there. Um, again, with no royalties to the people that really are in contact with the plants and come up with this stuff. So I don't know where we're headed with ayahuasca in particular. Part of me thinks ayahuasca is probably not going to be the first medicine to become legal because it doesn't easily lend itself to a clinical setting. And the same with wachuma and peyote. They're long-lasting medicines, for one. Wachuma, for instance, might last... 12 to 16 hours so to have a therapist sitting there with a client for that long is not practical you know that doesn't that doesn't work well for them ayahuasca though comes with all kinds of things that are viewed negatively by you know the the therapeutic industry all of the purging all of the the loss of control And I think that will save it possibly from that fate. Mm -hmm. And it will still remain a plant that is used primarily in ceremonial contexts of people who are really skilled or experienced because you cannot learn how to work with ayahuasca in a, in a short course, you know, for continuing education. It's a very, very complex plant. But, you know, there's there's a place for all of this, I think. I, I'm i all for sovereignty. You know, some of the things I say, sometimes people think I'm some kind of Puritan, and I'm not. I'm not at all saying we should not have legal legalization. I think all of these things should be legal in a way, because to make these things illegal, you're saying that we don't have any agency over our consciousness, and you're, that's a form of control. And there are many things that are legal that change our consciousness in bad ways. And so it's a really, it's a really unfortunate situation where something like alcohol, which is incredibly consciousness altering, is legal, but something like psilocybin is not. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So totally agree alcohol. The more I got into plant medicine stuff, the less I wanted to even really touch alcohol, but that's just me and kind of what I've discovered with myself. And the more I'm like, how is this legal? (laughs) How is this the one that everybody can just go to the store and buy? And it feels so dangerous um, compared to anything else that is like illegal or deemed as a big drug. Um, Alcohol just kind of, I don't know. I'm surprised it's the legal one. Well, if you look at the history of when things were banned, which was in the late 60s or early 70s, I wasn't alive, but it was Nixon who signed into law this. I mean, you're coming out of a period where in the 1950s, there was tons of research with LSD, even use of mescaline. I mean, thousands of published peer-reviewed papers on the use of LSD in psychotherapy because it was the psychiatrist who 
thought this is really helpful for all kinds of things um, and we're trying to figure out how to use it how... the government obviously gets very scared of populations that are out of control in the 1960s you know lsd mushrooms it led to a lot of inklings of a population of young people who may not be controllable well you don't get that effect with alcohol alcohol people drink and you know what they get hung over and they go to work the next day they drink again the next night and it becomes a pattern it's a very numbing medicine if you want to call it a medicine it doesn't lead to great insight it doesn't lead people into the streets protesting it usually leads them into a cycle of numbing their pain and and just sucking it up and being good citizens doing what we're expected and lsd all these <laughs> other plants they have the possibility that oh you're not going to be easily coerced into the next thing we're going to push so of course there's a fear by those in power you know power structures hegemony is like a very interesting thing to really study because it's not really a fair thing that we have gazillion billionaire you know people that have such wealth and then on the other end of the spectrum there are people that struggle to just pay their rent or put food on the table right no sane society would look at that and go that's fair all these mansions and then these people work so hard and they can't make ends meet but then you question well why does why do we tolerate that well because if all the people that were being oppressed decided to uprise they could easily go storm those mansions and move in and kick out the other guy you know but we don't um we're we're very good you know populations are populations basically support their own captivity and these plants like ayahuasca wachuma psilocybin lsd um, they tend to wake people up to that <laughs> and that you know that could be an unintended consequence we'll see maybe that would be a good thing when people wake up to the fact that they're they're choosing their own you know their own enslavement in many ways so you, earlier you said something about what ayahuasca gave you which i think was your connection to spirit and your connection to source and i was actually wanting to ask you a question about like what has delving into the plant medicine world given you um, personally i think the biggest gift it's given me is a connection to who I am, which I would never have known. I kept doing all kinds of things because it's not, it's who I thought I was. It's what I thought I was interested in. But at its core, you know, really diving in with ayahuasca really revealed like some parts of me that I just wasn't familiar with. I didn't know were there. And and so it's made me more whole as a person. Um, 
I was never a religious person. It was very interesting because my mom comes from a Jewish background. My dad comes from a Muslim background, but they raised us in the Catholic church in Texas. So I had like probably a lot of confusion, but <laughs> I, uh, I never had any kind of connection with spirituality where I, you know, there'd be a time where I didn't believe in God because I thought God was what was in, you know, there was a man in the clouds or it just, the, the way that religions talk about God just never resonated with me. And so it wasn't until I was deep with ayahuasca for a few years that something opened and I experienced you know, the indescribable where I could only come back and say, yeah, <laughs> there's a God, but it's not a man. <laughs> it's not in a cloud. It's a very advanced technology beyond our wildest comprehension. The kind of technology that can create universes is not anything like a human. Of course, we're made as part of this universe so there's a part of us that is the threat of that but i think we we look really silly when we try to make god out to be human-like and we make ourselves look silly by doing that because god is so beyond our wildest comprehension and the only way to really know god i think in my experience is to experience god and I think it's taken me to a different place, a different relationship with the universe to know that, you know, this three-dimensional world we live in, our senses are very primitive. They were intended to, to live in this realm, but there's possibilities within us to experience some of that, what's beyond. And, you know, it breaks my heart in a way too, because on many levels, I want people to experience that. Like there are people in my life where, like my dad, for instance, I would, I think I told him these things, but he's like, okay, well, I'll just trust you. But like, to me, I'm thinking, oh, it's so sad that you don't get to experience it. Then you don't have to trust anybody. Then you just know. And so for me, that was, I think, the biggest gift. And then continually um, just revealing more parts of who I am and seeing my life as kind of an adventure of self-discovery where we're not, there's no final resting place where it's like, okay, I've made it. I've figured it all out. It's not like that. You know, the second I think I figured it out, if I continue to work with the plant medicine, then it's like, oh, wait, there's a whole nother thing that you didn't see. It's like the new, you know, the lessons evolve. And because I'm, I'm really interested in learning, I'm very curious about learning. I view it as a way of learning. It's a, it's a really interesting way to learn too, because it's not being taught by a book or what like somebody said it's by experiencing and that is another whole conversation but i think our education system discourages people from from the self-experience learning that can be much more valuable than what you read in a book 
or what you study about psychology is very different when you when you're inside and you experience it and you see it so there's a lot of things that I've gotten from plant medicine but to me it's not it's not about what I get from it you know I'm not seeking something out of it it's a relationship mm. and I you know I I hear people talk about it too it's like well what does it do what do you do it's like think about like how you enter a romantic partnership it's like well what are you going to do for me what do you do you know that is transactional mm. it's not like that it is for many people and I think that's why they don't receive all of the benefits because they view it as a transactional relationship but it's not it's like a dance it's exposing parts of yourself and parts of the universe exposed to you but it's not an exchange and you can't negotiate for it. <laughs> it is what it is. It's just, it's really complex. And so I'm not seeking from it anything. In fact, these days, I don't, I don't know, like, oh, I don't have the feeling like, oh, I need to go to ceremony and get something. I remember in my early days, that was my feeling, which is like, okay, I'm working on something. Oh, I need to process this or I need to, do this and it was the wrong approach but it was what I needed at the time and I noticed that maybe in the last three years it's just shifted where it's like no that's not how I approach the medicine with demands or with an idea that the medicine is going to heal me or help me and instead I approach with just curiosity show me uh, or I don't show me whatever it is just what is it I don't know I don't know and I think that has created a, a framework for like an internal framework for me where there's all kinds of revelation happening within the ceremonial space to me but it isn't what I ask for or like you know I don't know it's a very beautiful thing it is really beautiful it's really beautiful how you talk about it and it I love the idea of a relationship with it um it's almost like um like bhakti how you describe bhakti or devotion and you also say relationship with it so that's what what I also felt when you said that and it's not like a negotiation or a transaction. It's just like a, a dance. Mm, so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a relationship. Mm. Mm. Okay. Well, I feel like I've kept you long. I could ask you questions for hours and I didn't even, I didn't even scratch the surface, but <laughs> I mean, thank you so much. You're welcome. Is there anything else that's like on your heart that you have been wanting to say, but didn't yet? Mm. I don't know. I don't have anything that I, I didn't have an agenda coming in okay. just to chat with you and see where the conversation went. And hopefully some of what we spoke about, mm. you know, resonates with people or 
causes them to have questions and I invite anybody to really be curious about things. One of the the themes I've been noticing a lot lately is just certainty. Like the more certain people are, the less I, the, the, the more certain you are, the less you're probably true about what you're saying because truth is not a binary thing. Like your truth is true for you. My truth is true for me. It doesn't negate either one. And I think we live in a world where things are constantly being put into these labels like truth or misinformation or this and that. And everyone's trying so hard to protect the psyche because if you don't know, there's a feeling of uncertainty and a feeling of anxiety that arises in people. So there's this inner need for people to know, like I've noticed that a lot. It's like people are not okay not knowing. Mm. But I don't think that's how it works. I think that the more you think you know, the more diluted you are. The problem is that we never know where we're at. And so I keep reverting back to curiosity, which is just be open to everything. Like it, it shouldn't hurt me to hear somebody talk and I don't necessarily have their experience. Like that shouldn't be painful to me. If there is, then it's my fault, not theirs. <laughs> like, so people should be able to listen to other people and disagree, but like smile and go, wow, I didn't think of it that way. And maybe that doesn't convince me, but that's okay. Like there's no harm. I feel like there's a war of truth truth going on and it really hurts the psyche mm. so I just encourage people to revert to curiosity curiosity is where wisdom comes out of because you kind of start to see that well actually we're probably all wrong about everything because of the fact that we have to describe it in words and words always fail to describe this universe no matter what aspect we're talking about mathematics is another language maybe that gets close but it doesn't hit the nail on the head either it's all we're just we're all just fumbling around and that's okay too be okay not knowing so that's kind of what i've been reminding people of lately is it's okay just keep an open mind and that's kind of how we started the conversation with who are you? What do, what do you do? And I said, well, you know, if you name me, you negate me, right? Mm. Like, so maybe just leave things unnamed is, is a good practice as well. And that reminds me of when I asked you the question, um, what would you tell your younger self or somebody new on the journey? And I mentioned it actually in the podcast with Mallory and I probably totally butchered it, <laughs> but you were talking about basically being in the uncertainty and like, waiting in the desire and not needing to get to a destination or something like that. Yeah. I don't remember what I told you because it was in a voice message and I was probably driving, but <laughs> something along the lines of that, because early in, early in my spiritual journey, I'm not going to project this on other people. 
I kept thinking I found it. I thought, oh, wow, the Buddha, he really found it. He really got it. And I read everything that I could. And I practiced the practices. What you start to see as you go along is that, well, some things, there's always some like holes in it, like pieces that don't make sense, but then the explanation will come to like make it make sense. But nobody questions the explanation. So then I just the way my mind works, I start to like dig deeper and I realize like, well, there's a lot of holes in this that that have to be filled. So then it's like, oh wait, yoga, that actually that might be the way. <laughs> or, you know, fill in the blank. So like keep finding new ways that new paradigms that explain everything. And I think what I realized later is. I don't know that any paradigm is going to fully explain the unexplainable. So it's okay. <laughs> and then you just arrive at a place of peace and they're like, oh, hmm. yeah, they all get close. And that's maybe as best we can do as humans is to get close. And being okay with the closeness and not the full clear answer and destination. Yeah, and Buddha actually talked about this too. So he actually spilled the beans early, but nobody listens because he said that life is full of suffering, right? But the word in the Pali language he used, which I'm not going to say because I don't want to butcher it, but the word is often translated as suffering into English, but that's not really what it means. What he was saying is life has an unsatisfactoriness, unsatisfactory nature to it, which is like, no matter how close you get to like, where you think you need to be or where you think you, there's still this unsatisfactory nature. There's a yearning. And that yearning, I think, is why we live. That is the essence of life is if we didn't have a yearning, this, what's the point of it all? We're yearning to live. And maybe the point is that that desire, that yearning is really important for us and not to try to eliminate desire. That's not the way. Maybe, maybe cherish it and maybe find, find the beauty in it. And find the beauty in that unsatisfactoriness um, that's part of being human. And that feels like peace to me. Finding peace in the unsatisfactoriness. It's like, I don't need to be satisfied. I'm already peaceful, even if it's not figured out. That feels like the ultimate peace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my last question I ask everybody is, the name of this podcast is called Talking Each Other Home. And so... I want to know what is home to you. Home for me is not a physical place. It is a, it is a feeling. Um, it's when all of the parts of my ego that are there to protect me but speak to me loudly when they quiet and I connect with the more subtle core of who I am, that's home. 
and that's where I remember who I am. That's when I, when I hinted at plant medicines connecting me to God, actually, it was remembering something that's in there. It's always there, but it's quiet. And uh, that's my home. Mm. Mm. Great. Amazing. Such a sweet, it just brings me into this place that I just want to hug everything. <laughs> like it's just so sweet. Uh, okay. That's why I got the tattoo. Remember actually. Nice. Remember actually. Yeah. <laughs> you were part of that actually. Um, okay. Well, let's, I, we went on way longer than I thought. So thank you for your time, Hamid. I'm sorry that I kept you for so long. Um, yeah, but thank you so much. And where, where can people find you if they want to connect with you and you do so many things, we didn't even get into the mineral thing, but, um, yeah. Um, well, you can find me on Instagram, Hamid.jabbar. So just check the show notes for the spelling. And then I do have an account called Mineral Shaman on Instagram, which is the piece we didn't really talk about. And so if people are interested in that work, which is still evolving, I, it's, it's a baby that is, has not been ready to be birthed, um, but it's, it's doing something. So they can find that Mineral Shaman. And then my website is just my name, hamidjabbar.com. Um, I do, you know, like the public facing work that I do is usually around minerals and health and sound. And so if people are resonant with that, those are available at hamidjabbar.com or mineral shaman. I do in-person sound training still twice a year. Maybe you'll come one time and I have an online sound course that you know, for people that want the freedom to space it out over months or years or revisit, it's a really, it's a different way to learn. And so that's, there's information about that on my website too. And I'll put all of that in the show notes. And I'm, I'm in your online training right now, online sound training, and I love it. I love it. I so can't wait to come in person and actually experience all the instruments and like some of the stuff you put on your Instagram where there's like gongs everywhere and little tongue drums or whatever you pull out. It's just like this whole yoga studio of instruments that everybody gets to play with. It looks like uh, Disneyland for sound practitioners. And so, but I'm, I'm in the online one and it's amazing. Like I am just blown away learning about ohm, learning about the sound and like we're hearing geometry. I was, I forgot to mention that earlier, but I was like, that is so cool. So there's so many things that you have in there that just make you think about sound and music in a totally different way. And it makes it more accessible and less like you have to be a musician. It, and like the overtones, I'm like, okay. So I'm understanding musical language that I never thought I would get. And I'm under, I don't know. It's just, I'm, loving it so if anybody's thinking about learning about sound at least get this thing and then you're definitely going to want to come in in person and do and practice with Hamid but I love it 
mind blown every single lesson. I'm, I've, I hear something new every single day. I turn that thing on and I just, I don't want to post so much about it because it's like, you know, I don't want to like overwhelm anybody or like totally blast you with a bunch of stuff, but it's that good, that exciting to me. Um, yeah. So that's just a little testimonial for you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that it resonates, you know, and, and as you mentioned, if you ever come to the in-person one, it is like a bunch of kids playing with instruments for two weekends because it's just a lot of fun, you know? Yeah, it looks like a lot of fun. So I don't know, anybody check out his Instagram and you'll see some of the stuff that they do in person. If sound healing or meditation or journey sounds exciting to you, I would say to, to go for it because it's, I don't know, like we're all musicians and artists. And I think that we've just been told that we're not coming from somebody who was kind of an athlete, like never played anything or saying anything. And now I'm really getting into it and finding myself in a new way. And if I talk about my teacher, this is it, Tamid. Uh, so yeah, that's why it's so exciting to have you here with me. Cause it's, uh, it's been a fun journey discovering myself through music with you. So, yeah. yeah. Well, there are no accidents, you know, people come together it's like there's a resonance right and so somehow you came into my life and I came into your life and we share and I learn from you and you learn from me and then you're going to go out and you already are just spreading that vibration so it's all good a ripple effect okay well thank you Hamid and everybody who's watch this and listen to this. Thank you so much for your time and energy. I appreciate you so much. And I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. So thank you. We'll see you on the next one. Peace.